Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by OldSchoolShirts.com. Hey, check them out. You like defunct teams and leagues and T-shirt form? Well, you'll find them there, but a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Do you remember a radio station of the past or perhaps a mall that you used to go to? All kinds of great cultural and sports memories can be found at the great folks at OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. Well, those of us... Old enough to remember Bob Cole's iconic call. They're going home. Also remember what was at stake that day in Philadelphia. That was back in 1976. Us versus them was not Canada versus the Soviets this time. It was the Stanley Cup champions against the Russian Red Army. But there was pride on the line to the point of briefly turning bullies into heroes. Michael Farber has more on a famous and infamous game 40 years ago today. Forty years ago, the Broad Street Bullies, properly known as the Philadelphia Flyers, were the scourge of hockey. But on January 11, 1976, for the first and maybe the only time, the Flyers wore the white hats. They were facing the unbeaten Red Army in its final game of a North American tour. As far as this game is concerned, I believe it's going to be the highlight of my life. If we win, I'm going to be sky high, and if we lose, I think it'll be worse than dying. In his pregame speech, Coach Fred Shiro said, they have the Iron Curtain in Russia. Let's show them the Iron Curtain of North America. They must up the Red Army from the opening faceoff with what coach Konstantin Lokte would call animal hockey. Fires that close man. That Kailov, oh, again. Harlamov is really belted by Van M. Soviet star Valery Harlamov crumpled to the ice where he remained for a minute. Loktev called his players to the bench in protest, and referee Lloyd Gilmore responded with a delay of game penalty. And so with no promise the bullies would play nice, the Red Army streamed to its dressing room. There was a question of a $200,000 guarantee. No play, no pay. Soviet Army team is back on the ice. The delay has been approximately 15 minutes. The Flyers won four wins. And Joe Watson, who would never score a shorthanded goal in 919 NHL games, had one that day. Shiro liked the joke that Watson Shorty said Soviet hockey back 25 years. The Broad Street Bullies might have been the barbarians at the gate, but they were our barbarians. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's do this, everybody. How are you? It's Tim Hanlon, your uh, host and congenial one at that, uh, welcoming you to yet another episode of the fun-filled extravaganza we call 
good seats still available. Yes, it's the Curious Little Podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We do this every week. I appreciate you finding us and welcome, as always, to the proceedings. We uh, appreciate it to no end. And uh, I think the tone uh, is set. The table is ready uh, for our conversation as uh, laid out. From that clip from uh, 2016 on the CBC, no, sorry, that was TSN. We'll talk about CBC in a second. The TSN uh, cable network, which is the sort of Canadian version of uh, ESPN Sports Center, back in uh, in 2016, when they were celebrating the 40th anniversary uh, of what is actually this week going to be the 48th anniversary of our topic of the week, and that is the Super Series 76. And in particular, the final game of that series between the Philadelphia Flyers, the defending NHL Stanley Cup champions that year, that season, and the Red Army team of the Soviet Union back in the day. Uh, The Super Series 76, as you may remember, was one of these um, uh, parade of um, exhibition series that uh, sort of... uh, were dominant and and uh, uh, in the 1970s in in professional hockey. We've talked about a couple of WHA versions and and such previously, but Super Series 76 was the first of the Super Series that was uh, team based, not sort of all star based per se. Um, and in particular, this was a series of games played between uh, uh, two club teams in the then Soviet Championship League one the Red Army team, and the other being the uh, team known as the Soviet Wings, against a, um, a a variety of teams in the National Hockey League. The Rangers, Montreal Canadiens, the Boston Bruins, uh, Pittsburgh Penguins, the Buffalo Sabres, the uh, Blackhawks of Chicago, the New York Islanders, and perhaps most famously of all of those eight games played in that Super Series 76 was January 11th, 1976, Live and exclusive from the Spectrum was this uh, uh, amazing game that took on a whole sort of host of of different sort of uh, stories and and various tensions uh, between the Flyers and the Red Army team. That is the topic this week as we get into our conversation with our guest, Ed Groover. He, the author of the brand new book called The Game That Saved the NHL, The Broad Street Bullies, The Soviet Red Machine and Super Series 76. And we'll get into why Ed feels that this was the game that saved the NHL and and all the sort of tension and drama and buildup before this game, that uh, being in the series itself, uh, what transpired in the series, why the series occurred in the first place, and the the, the legacy, if you will, of this game. A very hard-fought game, as you can imagine, the Broad Street Bullies having gained their name uh, in the NHL, relatively new club, uh, as we know from the NHL's uh, uh, fits and starts uh, driven kind of expansion in the late 60s, early 70s. And the Flyers really made their mark on the NHL and was very much the representative uh, best of the league at that time as this series was winding down. And uh, mayhem, uh, drama, the, the, the Soviet team walking off the ice or skating off the ice, as you heard there famously Uh, called on the CBC call. They're going home. They're going home. Uh, And um, uh, it's uh, uh, an interesting story. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, stay tuned. I think you'll find it uh, intriguing 
and will really shape, I think, a little bit of uh, some of your uh, interest in the NHL today and, and maybe sort of harken back to uh, where it mattered a lot more on a whole bunch of different levels uh, than just simply uh, making um, Gary Bettman and the uh, various uh, franchises uh, just that much more uh, rich, I guess, uh, and uh, making a buck or two. Uh, this is the uh, fascinating story of that game from uh, from January 11th of 1976, and I look forward to presenting it to you in moments' time. Uh, the book, again, is called The Game That Saved the NHL, and you can find it uh, wherever good books are found. But, of course, we appreciate it to no end. Uh, if you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, search up this episode numbered 322, our soon-to-be-had conversation with Ed Groover, and uh, you'll find a convenient couple of links to uh, Amazon where you can get the hardcover or Kindle versions of the book, and we'll get a couple of shekels of referral love. We appreciate that very much, as I'm sure it will Ed and uh, his uh, publisher, Lions Press. Um, all right, so let's waste no more time. Let's get right into that conversation. We had it uh, just before the holidays, and uh, we um, are excited to bring it to you now. Here it is, and please, as always, enjoy. Let's start from the start. Where Where is your adjunct to this story, both professionally, personally, and all that kind of stuff? Why, why is this story... Uh, how does this hit your radar and why? I grew up in that era. Uh, I grew up in North Jersey. Um, we were in the Newark area, just outside of New York. We were like 15 minutes drive from Manhattan. So I grew up watching hockey. I grew up, you know, watching the New York Rangers at that time. And, and their primary rival was the Philadelphia Flyers, and along with the Boston Bruins, I should add that as well. Um, but they had a tremendous playoff series in 1974 that may still rank as the most physical NHL playoff series of all time. I mean, it was pretty rough on both sides. Um, so I grew up watching those games. And uh, even though I was a Rangers fan, I could appreciate, you know, how hard the Flyers played, how much skill they had and knew that they were more than what their team reputation was, was, you know, that they were the Broad Street Bullies and that they won by by fighting. I knew from watching them that they were more than that. And as I grew older, I covered some hockey games for um, some uh, central PA newspapers and uh, was covered some of the Flyers games and, you know, really started to look deeper into the Flyers and their history and um you know this game stood out because i came across a quote early on from fred shiro who had said he was the flyers coach at that time and he said that you know this game against the russians is a bigger deal for us than the two previous stanley cups that we had won they had won in 74 when they beat the bobby or phil esposito boston bruins and then they won in 75 when they beat the famous French Connection line in Buffalo. So, I mean, that was pretty high praise from Fred Shearer, pretty important words to say that this one-game showdown with the uh, Central Red Army team from the Soviet Union was more important to him and his team than the two previous Stanley Cup championships that they had just won. Yeah, and it's also part of a... a, a um an evolving legacy, right? I mean, people forget that uh, the the Flyers 
you know, really only came onto the scene nineteen till ni- not till nineteen sixty seven, right? When mm-hmm. the NHL Correct. realized there's actually, you know, they can expand beyond six teams mm-hmm. easily enough. Um, but that's a pretty rapid ascent by today's standards, maybe not so much, but to go from that to back to back world championships or at least NHL championships, mm-hmm. uh, wink wink, nod nod. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a full head of steam, right? Going into whatever this event we're going to get into in a second. Mm -hmm. And I think people, um, you know, didn't like the fact that the Flyers were the first, you know, uh, non-original six team to win a Stanley Cup. People forget that. The Flyers were the first expansion team to win a Stanley Cup. You know, as you mentioned, the league expanded in 67 beyond the six teams. And, you know, um, I think they found fault with a lot of things, you know, particularly the Flyers' uh, physical style. And, you know, um, the Flyers were a physical team. You know, there's no debating that, and there's no way to to say that wasn't true. But to say that they were the only team doing it is not realistic at all. I mean, you know, the Big Bad Bruins of that era who won two Stanley Cups, I mean, they weren't named the Big Bad Bruins just because of, you know, Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito. I mean, they had some tough physical guys playing for that team. You know, the St. Louis Blues, who were coached by uh, legend Scotty Bowman, were known as a pretty physical hockey team. You know, they had beaten up the Flyers pretty badly in uh Stanley Cup series. And that beating really prompted Ed Snyder and GM Keith Allen to start building a bigger, tougher team. Because as Ed Snyder said at the time, we are not going to go through this again. You know, we we have a lot of small guys. We're getting beaten up in the playoffs by bigger guys. From now on, you know, we're going to be the aggressors. So, so let's put this in perspective. So the Flyers are the two-time back-to-back NHL champions uh, in the mid 70s the 74 and 75 cups mm-hmm. um describe what this super series in 1976 was going to be and and frankly there's a little bit of history with this idea of then soviet teams coming across the pond shall we say to play mm-hmm. in the continent right because as we've we've seen and heard in the our discussions around the old WHA right there were I mean, there's a legendary summit series in 1972 and another mm-hmm. one in 74 right where you know canadian pride uh was on full display uh against sort of the you know the the terror from afar um mm-hmm. th- there is a little bit of uh it's clear from a an event perspective there's a lot of opportunity with that but this one's a little different and maybe you can kind of sort of set the stage for us on that yeah, this was different. It was really groundbreaking because it was the first time that you had Soviet teams, teams from the Soviet League, not a national team, like as you mentioned, that represented the Soviet Union in 72 Summit Series against you know uh, NHL players, an NHL all-star team. And then in 74, the Russians returned with a national team to play a summit series against the WHA, the World Hockey Association stars, guys like, you know, it was an aging Gordie Howe and Bobby Hull and some of those players. Um, but this was the first time Super Series 76, which was actually starting in December of 75 and would carry over into January of 76, 
was the first time that you had two Soviet League teams, um, the Central Red Army team and the Soviet Wings, coming to North America to play uh, eight games against National Hockey League teams, not a, not an NHL All-Star team, but actual National Hockey League clubs. So that's why this series was groundbreaking. It was the first time you ever had teams from the Soviet League playing teams from the NHL. And the motivation was what? Coming from whom? Who wanted this? Both sides wanted it because um, the, the Soviets wanted it because they saw that you know playing NHL teams could only – uh, fine-tune their their game for the upcoming Winter Olympics. Um, the NHL wanted it because um, in 72, they had been shocked by the Soviet national team. And uh, it was an eight-game series, and uh, a lot of NHL writers at the time prior to the series thought that, you know, the NHL was going to win all eight games. It was going to be 8-0 sweep. Well, it came down to the NHL having to pull out a game uh, eight victory in Moscow on a Paul Henderson goal against Vladislav Tretiak. And that set off, you know, New Year's Eve style celebrations, even though it was September in uh, Canada and throughout parts of North America. Um, but the NHL wanted it because their feeling was, you know, when we're playing the Soviets, in early September, our guys aren't really in shape yet. You know, season-round training, or excuse me, year-round training at that time wasn't what it is today. Uh, a lot of guys had off-season jobs. They weren't really in hockey shape. The Soviet players, at, in the meantime, were basically training and playing hockey and practicing 11 months out of the year. So this, the NHL saw that as a huge advantage for the Russians and they were like, you know, if we play again, we're going to have a situation where we're going to play in season and we're not going to put together a uh, all-star team where guys have to get used to playing with each other. We're going to pick eight teams that you can come over here and play. So that was the uh, the basically the ground rules for this series. And it was going to be uh, confined largely to teams in the Northeast and uh, Midwest. They didn't go any further west than Chicago because the NHL didn't think that it was economically feasible to send you know, a Russian team out to, say, L.A. to play the Kings for one game. They didn't want to deal with those travel expenses. So it was basically eight teams in the Northeast and in the Midwest, and they would play four games against the Central Red Army team and four games against the Soviet wings. And, um, you know, the schedule makers indulged their sense of drama by having uh, the two league champions, the two best teams in the hockey world at that time, the uh, Philadelphia Flyers and, this, and the Soviet Red Army team play in the eighth and final game in Philadelphia in the spectrum. Yeah, and, and the... Um... The 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 idea right was uh, it wasn't even sort of a a standing space competition. It was just basically a series of eight games. Red Army playing four, Soviet Wings playing four. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think they even uh, I don't think even the NHL teams shared the experience. There were eight different 
uh, NHL teams, correct? Correct. Um, now, I should say, say, too, that, you know, the there was some uh, concern on the NHL side when they found out that the Soviet teams were basically adding ringers to their two clubs that were going to come over here, that they were rating other Soviet League teams for some of their best players that they were going to add to Central Red Army and that they were going to add to um, Soviet wings. And, you know, some of the NHL players at the time like Phil Esposito by this time was with the New York Rangers they were going to be playing the Red Army team in Madison Square Garden and uh, when Esposito heard about you know the Red Army team adding players from other Soviet League teams he's there you know well you know why can't we add like Marcel Dion from the LA Kings or why can't we add you know some all-stars from other players or from other teams because that's obviously what they're doing so even though the games were billed as you know uh, quote unquote exhibition games, friendlies as the Russians called them. Uh, it was pretty clear that the Soviets were not treating them as mere exhibitions. They were treating them as, you know, a test of Soviet hockey versus NHL hockey. Yeah. And look, and again, the, the 72 and 74 uh, summit series prior to that, right? Certainly, I wouldn't call them, it's almost like Rocky movies in some respects, mm -hmm. um, but it, it certainly set the stage for sort of that, uh, that tension, that international sort of drama and intrigue that sort of comes with it. But as you said before, right, this is is unique by comparison because, number one, these are club teams and featuring the, some of the best ones in both leagues. And two, mm -hmm. this is literally smack dab in the middle of both of their, if you will, regular seasons. Mm -hmm. Yes, and smack dab in the middle of the Cold War that was going on. Um, and I should preface uh, my remarks, too, by saying that you know, the 72 Summit Series was also famous, apart from its drama, for the uh, slashing penalty from Bobby Clark, who happened to be the captain of the Philadelphia Flyers, on the Soviets' best player, Valery Harlamov. He was kind of the uh, Pava Bore of his era. I mean, he was the original Russian rocket for fans who know about Bore. But um, so... Uh, you know, that lent all kinds of, of drama and controversy to both the Summit Series and the upcoming uh, Super Series because, you know, uh, the Russians want to know, well, you know, is, is Clark going to, you know, deliberately go after Harlamov again? Is, you know, is Dave Schultz going to, you know, intentionally pound one of our guys? You know, what are we going to be walking into when we go into Philadelphia? All right. Tell, tell me about sort of the games leading up to this sort of final, because obviously the, the book is is primarily focused uh as that that game against the flyers um against the um uh, against the 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 soviet team to be you know obviously the exclamation point for this but um you know this is the first time that these two leagues were really playing each other head to head um mm -hmm. i'm curious number one how these games sort of went this was sort of in late december early january um 75 into 76 and i guess i'm also curious as to why which why these particular teams in the nhl were chosen i mean you mentioned the ge geographical thing but um you know the flyers were two-time champions get that that's probably best of breed the montreal canadiens at the time uh were probably the best team that season and then to, uh, to become the uh, eventual champions that season of the mm -hmm. NHL, so that makes a lot of sense. But but why the Penguins? Why the Rangers? Uh, why even the um, you know wh why 
Why the Bruins? Yeah, um, they, because they were considered Bruins and Rangers were considered, you know, flagship franchises of the NHL. They're part of the original six. You know, they're kind of like original six royalty. Um, plus, uh, you know, the Bruins boasted Bobby Orr. Uh, he had never played against the Soviet superstars like Harlamov and Tretiak and uh, Boris Mikhailov. And, you know, there was a lot of interest in seeing or playing against the Russians because he had been injured in the, uh, at the time of the 72 Summit Series. He would have played then, but Bobby had a knee injury and wasn't able to participate in that series. So there was a lot of interest in seeing Bobby Orr, you know, going against the Russians. And there was interest in seeing, you know, the Soviet teams on, you know, uh, ice in famous arenas like Madison Square Garden, uh, the Boston Garden, the Montreal Forum. Um, you know, uh, the Buffalo Sabres were chosen because they had been Stanley Cup finalists the year before. They had played the Flyers and had lost in six games but they had the famed French connection line. Um, the Pittsburgh Penguins and the New York Islanders were chosen because they had uh, gone deep into the playoffs the year before. They had played a, a great uh, semifinal series. Um, and um, so basically these teams were chosen on, you know, what they had done the year before and also what they had done in past years. Uh, some teams, uh, again, they could have chosen the Kings, but the NHL didn't want to foot the bill for the expenses to send the Russians out to L.A. for, you know, a one-game deal. Um, also, the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, they were offered a chance, but their uh, owner um, did not want, he said at that time, he did not want Soviet players skating on Montreal, or excuse me, on uh, uh Toronto Forum ice. So that's why the, the Russians did not play the Maple Leafs in that series. But basically those teams, again, were chosen because of their competitiveness and because of their their history and their tradition and their breed, breeding. Well, it's interesting because the, the, the first number of games uh, certainly didn't seem to play out, I guess, maybe as, as NHL uh, officials might have thought. I mean, Red Army beat the Rangers on this on the twenty eighth of of seventy five December twenty eighth seventy five seven to three and then the Wings beat the Penguins by almost identical score seven to four the next night. Mm -hmm. right. um, it, it obviously had to be a bit demoralizing, but um, the tide did turn though on the that New Year's Eve game against uh, the Canadiens, the Red Army team, um, and maybe this was sort of a beginning of maybe the the real best of. Knock it, knock it at each other's heads and maybe a real uh, truer test perhaps of where the best of the best stood on both sides. Yeah. And, you know, um, from all accounts, and I've watched that game. I mean, you can watch it on on YouTube. You know, I have a, a DVD of it. Uh, the, the Canadian is, is Foster Hewitt calling the action? <laughs> I believe he is. He's got to be, Canadians, of course. Yeah. The Canadians uh, outplayed the uh, Central Red Army team throughout the game. You know, it's only superior goaltending by Tretiak that saved the Russians from being embarrassed on the scoreboard. Um, that's the only reason they came away with a 3-3 tie in that game. But, you I know... Mean, I, think um, was, I think he was outshot something like by by like a, by a three... I think it was like 38-13 to 13 or something like that. Yeah, but, that you know, that stat uh, is misleading when you're dealing with Russian teams because... 
they're all outshot in almost every game, but yet they they win the majority of their games. And the reason they're outshot is because they play a European style where they go more for strategic passing um, than they do for high volume shots on goal. The Russians look at it as if they take a shot on goal and it's blocked or turned away to them, that's a turnover. So, um, you know, they value high percentage shots. They'll hold the puck, they'll pass it, uh, they'll move it around until they can maneuver uh, into what they feel is the highest percentage shot possible for them. So they are going to be routinely outshot when playing NHL teams because the NHL teams play dump and chase. You know, they'll, they'll blast away from the blue line and the Russian teams at that time really didn't. You didn't really see them doing it. They would carry the puck in past the blue line and, you know, try to score on the best shot possible. So it's just a different outlook on, on attacking at that point. So, um, you know, the Russians being a shot was, was not uh, anything new. Um, what was new is, as you said, that they were pretty well handling the NHL teams, uh, except for the top three teams, which were the Canadians, who they tied, were fortunate to get a tie against. Uh, the Wings went into Buffalo and were manhandled. Um, and, you know, then, of course, it was left to the Red Army to play the, the NHL champion Flyers in Philadelphia. All right. So set the tone then for this game. This is the last of the eight games being played on January 11th, 1976. Why, uh, given the Sabres beating the Wings that one game uh, in earlier earlier in the month and that tie between the Canadiens and the Red Army team, um, you know, being the two bright lights, I guess, of the NHL performance yeah. against these two teams at that point. Um, what What's left to prove and why does the why does this game take any sort of greater uh, tension or um, drama versus the other games? Like what, what, what was it? Is it mostly after the fact of this game or was it, it was also leading up to this game that there was something unique and different about this? Was it because this was the, 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 uh, the, the current champion of the league in the NHL, the Flyers and the Red Army? Was that, was that the ticket or was there, were there other things afoot? Before the game started, I think there are yeah, there are definitely other things afoot. I mean, we we had the um, the Russian Philadelphia connection going back to '72 with the Bobby Clark, uh, Valerie Harlamov slashing situation uh, that forced Harlamov, you know, out of the Summit Series for a game, and then when he did come back, he was clearly not the same player he had been before that because of the injury. So you had that. You also had the fact that Fred Shiro, the Flyers coach, had visited Moscow after the Flyers' first Stanley Cup victory for uh, uh, training techniques. He went over there to find out what the Russians were doing, and he brought some of that back and you know incorporated it into what the Flyers were doing. And um, you know, there's no question that Shiro, coaching the NHL champions, was heavily influenced by the Soviet style of hockey. So that was another connection. Um, you also had the fact that the Broad Street Bullies were, you know, internationally re renowned. I mean, um, when Shiro came back from Moscow, he brought back with him a pretty sizable pile of newspapers and uh, articles, you know, talking about the Wall Street Bullies, talking about, you know, Dave the Hammer Schultz and Bobby Clark and Moose DuPont and 
you know, all these players that the Russians were pretty well versed with. So you had a lot of these things, you know, coming together. And then, of course, you had the fact that this final game did match the champions of the two leagues, you know, the Soviet League champion Central Red Army, the NHL champion Philadelphia Flyers. And the game is taking place in Philadelphia, of course, you know, the birthplace of American freedom uh, and democracy. And so all these things coming together, at, you know, at the same time, um, you know, really built this game up into something more than a hockey game. Uh, you know, Freddie Shiro said at the time that, you know, the pressure was such on his team that they felt like they were suffocating, you know, in the days leading up to the game. This is a team that had just played for and won two Stanley Cups, and the pressure that they're feeling now is far greater than anything they had experienced before. And, you know, talking to the those Flyer players, uh, you know, I think that no team in NHL history before and, and you know, in the future is ever going to feel the pressure that the Flyers felt for that one game because – you know, no team is ever going to be put in this situation again where they're representing not only their their city, but they're representing the league, they're representing, you know, uh, decades of hockey tradition, uh, they're representing the most famous trophy in sports history, you know, the Stanley Cup. And, you know, then and now they're representing also, you know, democracy against communism, you know, uh, uh, North America versus the Soviet Union, all these political overtones that are taking place. You had uh, protests outside the spectrum that day. You had fights breaking out on the arena steps, you know, blood being spilled. You had banners inside the arena protesting the Soviets and the Soviets refusing to take the ice until the banners were removed. There was a lot going on. And the Flyer players themselves were like, you know, this game, we realized this game was much more than a hockey game. It had become a political event was it was this kind of stuff happening in the other games or was it only unique to this one it was pretty unique to this one um i think it was building up uh you know there were some situations in the other arenas where you know fans uh you know were highly uh obviously highly in favor of their home team against the russians more so than they would be say if the if the bruins were playing you know, the LA Kings, I mean, you had a whole different atmosphere than you have now when you have the Bruins playing, you know, the Central Red Army. I mean, that's a whole different thing. Same thing, fans in New York, you know, the Rangers playing the Central Red Army was much different than the, the Rangers playing, you know, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, which, because it was new, it was different. You know, the players from Russia were different, you know, were not known commodities like the NHL players were. They played a different style. Um, you know, um, there was just a lot going on with these games, but it really built up uh, because of the Flyers game and because of the, the situation that, you know, no one had beaten Red Army. You know, they had gone 2-0-1 against the NHL teams that they had played. And so it was left to the Flyers to to – you know, beat them and uphold the honor, so to say, of, uh, you know, NHL hockey. And that's why you had the NHL president, Clarence Campbell, you know, making a special trip to the Flyers locker room in the spectrum that day before uh, before the first period. And Campbell was a guy who didn't like Broad Street bullies. You know, he didn't 
didn't want to be on the ice to hand in the Stanley Cup the previous two years. And all of a sudden, he's in their dressing room before the game saying, you know, boys, you've got to win this game. All right, what's this? OldSchoolShirts.com. Fantastic. You've heard me talk on and on and on about the great folks and the great wares at OldSchoolShirts.com. Like the name implies, it's old school and it's shirts, and they put them together, see, into what they call OldSchoolShirts.com. It's like the name implies, but of course, we love them primarily uh, for their sports wear. You name the league of the past, you name the team of the past, the chances are huge that they're going to have more than one shirt and different color schemes for things that you may remember from the United Football League or the major indoor soccer league or various flavors of the original XFLs, plural, or the Federal League, perhaps, or maybe World Team Tennis, or maybe it was the North American Soccer League and on and on and on. But hey, it's not just sports. It's also great cultural touchstones and memories from the past. How about the officially licensed Evil Knievel connection? Connection? How about collection? Yeah, that's what he's trying to say. Uh, Various colleges. How about dead malls of the past? Ice cream parlors, maybe even radio stations that you might remember. Hey, even there's a latest edition of the old, now old, Aloha Stadium commemorative shirt. All that kind of stuff and more. You will find at least a handful of shirts that you will just transport you back into your past and you will amaze and impress your friends at the same time. It's oldschoolshirts.com. And we got a promo code for you, of course. Let's save you some dough while you go there. And it's a promo code is good seats. Good seats. That's the promo code at oldschoolshirts.com. Promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. Hey, P.F. Wilson and your friends at OldSchoolShirts.com, thank you for your sponsorship of the show. And now, back to our conversation. Ed Snyder had a a particularly sore uh, approach to this team, the Russian officials, and all that kind of stuff, dating back to from what I understand in, in some of the writing in your book um, to the actual formation of this series in the first place. Right. So I, it may be a little bit about Ed Snyder, the owner of this, this franchise, because I, he almost, it almost feels like he took almost personal umbrage to, to some of this, to, to this game too, adding even another level of, of intrigue, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, a lot of it was personal for Ed Snyder. Um, you know, at that time, uh, Russian Jews were, uh, you know, not being treated very well by the Soviet government. Um, and, you know, Ed Snyder, uh, you know, made no secret about the fact that he didn't like Russia. He didn't like the Soviet players. I mean, he didn't like the Soviet Union. And uh, at a pregame, you know, it was supposed to be a goodwill luncheon. Turned out to be anything but that. But, um you know, Ed Snyder had approached um, Flyers, one of the Flyers announcers, Gene Hart, who spoke Russian, and asked him to, you know, give him a few words that he could greet the Russians with uh, at the beginning of the banquet. And Gene Hart told him, you know, a few words that he could use. And Ed Snyder said later that when he stood up to speak and he looked over at the Soviet 
players and coaches that he just couldn't bring himself to to greet them in any kind of you know hospitable fashion he basically just you know gave a very cold welcome and sat down again and um so yeah he was not um you know a fan of the soviet union or russian hockey and um you know his role in this would become pretty clear later on in the first period when the russians would leave the ice and protest and there would have to be an emergency meeting between uh the russian coaches uh, the head coach was konstantin loktev uh and also with uh ed snyder and clarence campbell and scotty morrison and the nhl brass um i'm getting ahead of myself a little bit but again ed snyder's role in this was to try to you know get the russians to get back on the ice and continue the game all right well let's talk about that but but leading into that though too and i think you kind of danced around it a little bit is is well you said it earlier i mean the uh the national and international reputation of this flyers team that had won two consecutive championships was was this the 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 you know the 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 bully kind of sort of atmosphere almost like to the point of like uh uh you know the goon squad kind of approach to to hockey right rough and tumble and missing teeth and all that kind of stuff and it, my guess is that the 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 russian team and the the propaganda if you will literally and figuratively was playing that up too that they didn't really sort of perhaps think that this team was more than just that and then bullying their way to to winning games and stuff so i i guess snyder probably um internalized that as well but it's just it's ironic right because well, you described the game, right? Because that first that first period kind of sets the tone, and um, it certainly didn't lack for physicality, and that certainly is a hallmark of the Flyers uh, Flyers game at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, one thing to remember too is though is when you watch the the Soviet teams play back then, uh, you know, they weren't angels either. I mean, they were known in international competition for spearing, uh, for, you know, hitting guys, you know, behind the knee with their sticks. Um, You know, Phil Esposito, I know, really disliked the the Russians and playing against the Russians because he considered them dirtier than any NHL team that he played against because he, he thought they were sneaky dirty, that they would do things not blatantly, but they would do things to try to injure you and get you out of the game. Um, so, you know, Bobby Clark knew this. Uh, he had played against them, and he told his teammates to, you know, watch out for this kind of stuff. And Freddie Shiro knew it as well and did the same. Um, but, yeah, you know, the the Russians were a little bit leery of going into Philadelphia. Um, but their thing was if they could get the Flyers off their game, you know, maybe by doing some of these these sneaky kind of things that they were accustomed to doing, that maybe they could draw penalties and they could get the Flyers in shorthanded situations and, you know, the Russians would be on the power play and then they could start racking up some goals as they did in the other games. Um, but, uh, you know, Bobby Clark told his teammates, you know, whatever they do to try to get you off your game, you know, just stay calm, play it cool. And, um, you know, Freddie Shiro instituted what was a pretty solid game plan. Um, they went with a, a one four alignment, 
where they would have four players lined up along the blue line and they would have their center, whether it was uh, Bobby Clark or Rick McLeish or whoever was at center, um, as the attacking forward. Um, so, you know, that kind of threw the Russians off their game because no one had played that kind of style before. And it was interesting because Shiro, as innovative as he was, kind of reached back into history for that because that was a tactic that um, had been used by Hap Day and, and the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs when they were winning Stanley Cups back in the early 40s. They had used a similar style, 1-4 alignment. And it was interesting that Shiro, you know, who was very much a forward thinker, uh, kind of reached back into history to to use that kind of strategy to uh, blunt the Soviets' attack. Well, I'm sure Valerie Harlamov uh, was really looking forward to seeing Bobby Clark again. <laughs> from, those, from, from that 72 series uh, yeah but uh, ironically Karloff was was part of of let's call it the incident uh mm-hmm. i wonder if clark was uh, either jealous or thankful not to be part of it you want to describe and set the tone for what became very pretty much the flashpoint of this game in the first period yeah um and it had started actually before that uh the flyers started getting physical um, not long into that game. And it started with a hit delivered by Moose DuPont um, on Alexander Gusev at the Flyers' blue line. And that, I mean, the crowd was into the game right from the first puck drop. But when you watch the game on video, I mean, the crowd noise goes through the roof when DuPont drops Gusev at the blue line. And that seemed to energize not only the crowd, but the other flyer players because then you know bill barber upends uh harlem off in the corner and uh the flyers start really taking the body against the, the russian players who you know um at that time the soviets were played more of a european style so it was a more of a finesse game and the uh flyers were hitting them pretty hard cleanly but also pretty hard and then you know you had the situation where eddie van imp one of the Flyers defensemen comes out of the penalty box and Harlamov is going down the right side of the rink and uh, he doesn't see Van Imp coming toward him and Harlamov reaches back to get a a pass and he runs into uh, Eddie Van Imp's uh, upraised elbow slash shoulder and is dropped to the ice Uh, Harlamov is face down on the ice and Konstantin Loktev, the Russian's coach, uh, calls for the referee, Lord Gilmore, to issue a penalty. Gilmore refused, saying it's a clean check. And, you know, Harlamov is still down on the ice. And, um, you know, that's when Loktev calls his players over to the bench and says, you know, we're leaving. You know, we're out of here because the Flyers are playing what he called animal hockey. And he's there. We didn't come to Philadelphia for a boxing match. We came for a hockey game. So that's when they left the ice. Um, you know, but when you talk to the Flyers, uh, you know, to them, it was just a clean check. You know, it's kind of check that they saw in in NHL games all the time. You know, Eddie Van Imp said he hit guys much harder in the NHL and they never went down. Um, he said Harlemov was, uh, you know, basically being a Hamlet, you know, being an actor. And uh, Jimmy Watson, uh, Flyers defenseman, 
um, skated over where Harlem Wall was lying on the ice and yelled at him to get up. You know, you're not really hurt. And um, so was he? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Was he hurt? Uh, well, he returned and played the rest of the game. So, you know, the the, the Russians were known for dramatizing. You know, yes, exactly, and using tactics uh, to, you know, uh, again get man advantages, get power plays, uh, anything to do that they could get, uh, you know, a, an advantage that they would do it. Um, I'm sure the the hit was hard enough to to maybe you know, knock him off stride or something, whether it's hard enough for him to be face down on the ice for as long as he was, uh, the, at least the Flyers didn't think so. And the uh, the announcers, I know uh, Dennis Potvin of the Islanders was one of the announcers for that game. And he said that it was a clean check and, you know, it didn't look like Harlem Mob had been hit hard enough to be, you know, down for such a long time. Referee agreed, right, that it was a, a clean check. And, and so, I mean... What what ultimately happened? I mean, they they sort of stormed off, and and Snyder got involved, uh, you know, yelling and screaming. Everybody screamed. <clears throat> Shades of seventy two all over again when they were, you know, that uh, was it the fifth game in in uh, in Russia in Soviet Union. Um, uh, all kinds of, or maybe the sixth game. I forget what it was, but there there was a game in that series right where it was just mayhem, right, and people, mm-hmm. you know protesting and walking off and all that kind of stuff, all the drama and stuff. But um, it didn't really work out. It almost backfired, uh, if you will, because once they came back, um, Philadelphia just kind of resumed playing and and kind of took over from there. It was, it was scoreless before that, that incident happened, right? It, yeah, it was scoreless. And it should be stated that this was not the first time the Russians had left the ice in protest in international competition. They had done that before. And had actually, the Flyers had actually been warned before the game, um, several days before the game. They were warned by NHL brass that, you know, this might happen during the game. You know, there might be a hard check or two where the Russians protest and they're going to leave the ice. You know, just stay cool. Don't worry about it. They're going to come back and play. So just don't worry about it. So, um, so what happened, uh, to backtrack just a little bit, is that they go into their – respective locker rooms and um you know the nhl brass rushes to meet locktab to see what's going on and they're all talking through interpreters and locktab is telling them you know we're not going to play against this kind of hockey and um they wanted gilmore to assess a penalty gilmore instead assessed a delay of game penalty on end which meaning the flyers were going to be on the power play uh when play resumed and, um, you know, Ed Snyder said that, you know, if you don't play, you don't get paid. And it was at that point, um, as the story goes, that Lochtev said, oh, OK, you know, we'll finish at this game. But Lochtev has said since then that, you know, the Russians had been paid in advance. So money wasn't really a factor. So, again, it, that goes back and forth to, you know, uh, what you want to believe there. Um, I spoke with Larry Goodenough, who was one of the Flyers players, and he was down the hall, uh, he, and he heard the conversation between Snyder and the Russians, and he heard, heard you know, Ed Snyder yelling at the Russians that, you know, if, if you don't come back to the ice, you're not getting paid. So, you know, whether they knew that the Russians had been paid in advance, I'm not sure about that. But either way, they did return, and, um, yeah, uh, Flyers were on the man advantage, and they took advantage of it and got a goal past Tretiak and t- uh, took a one nothing lead. 
and they kind of never looked back. It was a four-one uh, victory at the end, but but uh, uh, true to form, right? They were uh, the Flyers, um, you know, uh, wildly outshot the Red Army team. Um, it seems like that uh, it only became more, um, uh, you know, more uh, of a frenzy in the form as the game sort of went on and stuff. Why do you think the game, though, at the end of all of it? And the drama that sort of was part of it. Why do you think it kind of took on sort of more meaning than the actual um, game itself? I mean, the victory in such a thorough fashion and and winning, if you will, sort of the stand down in the first period and all that. Um, it's it just it seems to me like um, that by itself might have been enough. But but you go another step further to to say that this really had another sort of level to it in terms of its importance. Yeah, it really, really um, kind of uh, marked the end of one era and the beginning of another. You know, at the end of the season, the Flyers returned for a third straight Stanley Cup final. They lost to the Canadians in four games. Um, but that's a little misleading because, you know, three of the four games were decided by a goal. Uh, the Flyers did not have two of their top players. Goalie Bernie Perrant did not play in the series. And um, their uh, second-line center, Rick McLeish, was also out. And McLeish had always been a very productive postseason player for the Flyers. And most people I've talked to uh, agree that, you know, if the Flyers had been at full strength, that series, you know, might have gone their way. But, you know, the Canadians won. They went on to win you know, four straight Stanley Cups. It really marked the end of the Broad Street Bullies. You know, Eddie Van Imp was traded even before the, the end of the season. Um, and then you had uh, Dave Schultz was traded at the end of the season. So this idea of the of the Flyers being enforcers and everything kind of, you know, started to uh, go away a little bit. And by the time they returned to the Cup Finals in uh, the 79-80 season against the Islanders, it was a vastly different kind of Flyers team, especially from the point of view of, um, you know, hockey purists. They were no longer the Broad Street bullies. Um, they were just like the Philadelphia Flyers. They didn't have that that uh, identity anymore. But, you know, it marked a, a change too because, you know, I think both sides realized that they had to change a little bit to keep improving. You know, the Russians realized they had to get more physical. They had to start uh, taking the body more, you know, engaging in more physical checks. Um, you know, they had to get away from that uh, uh, strategic passing that they did so much of the, the uh, stop playing so much East to West and start playing North to South, like the, um, like the flyers or flyers in the NHL did. And the NHL and the flyers realized that they in turn had to, to, you know, improve their conditioning to, to, you know, be better conditioned as the Russian players were. They had to, you know, train year round. They had to improve uh, their style of play too. maybe go a little more to strategic passing and less to the, the dump and chase. So you, you saw a, a melding of two, you know, different ways of playing hockey, two outlooks, you know, the European style and the North American style started to come together more. And by the time the, you know, the Iron Curtain fell and the Berlin Wall came down, now you had Russian players and European players coming into the NHL, and it really became a global league, which is what it is now. And you see the 
you know, it's less any one style. It's more a melding of styles now. The, the European style and the North American style have come together to form, you know, uh, the NHL as we know it today. Yeah, it's interesting too. There's a little funny little uh, component, funny, uh, unique, interesting uh, tidbit here on the uh, um, in the game. I, maybe you can describe it a little bit. Uh, Coach Shiro uh, uh, was amazed, I think, that uh, uh, Joe Watson, uh, who was a defenseman and not a not a major scorer by any stretch, if you look at the stats over his uh, his career, um, he he got a a, a, a shorthanded goal against the uh, against the against this team and 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 perhaps against one of the the greatest goalkeepers at that time in in Trechak. Oh, sure. mm-hmm. um, I mean I can't think of another more humiliating component there than, <laughs> than that it's almost an exclamation point. Yeah, and you know Joe Watson told me that you know after the game uh Shiro told him, you know, hey, you know, you just sent you just set the Russian hockey program back 20 years with that goal and it was like well, and years later uh, Joe Watson went to Moscow and was asked about the Soviet, you know, Flyers game in 76 by, uh, you know, Moscow teenagers. And Joe was like, you guys are too young to know anything about that game. They like, oh, we know everything about that game. You know, that's talked about a lot over here. And this is just, you know, this is decades after the game was played. And Joe had another funny story where he, uh, they saw like a, chain gang uh prisoners in russia working and uh joe asked one of the guards you know why are these guys here and they said oh they were on the ice when you scored your goal that is, so i yeah i wonder how the the remnants of that hockey program there kind of took that and you know it's it, clearly it's it's an event on their on their radars, probably not unlike the 72 and, and, and to lesser extent, the 74 uh, Summit Series as well, right? Because it was just such it, against that sort of Iron Curtain backdrop, right? I mean, the, these games, right, but all, the, all these series, right, were um, not just hockey affairs, but these were uh, in certain cases um, pretty well seen uh, in both countries and maybe even further than that. Um, these were pretty mm-hmm. big deals, in the hockey world and, and, and to, in some respect, the sports world, just because of the tension of the international intrigue uh, between these two yeah. nations. Yeah. And I spoke with Arthur Chidlowski, who is probably the world's leading historian on Russian hockey. He grew up in Moscow. He was uh, a young teenager at that time. And he remembers he received permission from his mom to stay up late and watch that game. And he said, Everybody in Moscow was watching that game. And, you know, they were fascinated by the sight of their league champions, you know, the Central Red Army team, on the same ice as the Philadelphia Flyers, you know, the Broad Street Bullies. It was just something that they had never thought they would ever see. And here it was. And it just, you know, captured the imagination of an entire country and, and both countries, you know, and throughout Europe. It was It was a huge deal because it was – you know, the Soviet Union saw their sports program and especially their hockey program as extensions of their political system, their way of life. And if, you know, if they could beat North American teams, then to them, communism was better than capitalism. 
and their way of life was superior to the way of life here in North America. And that's the pressure that both of these teams were under when they came together for that one game in January 76. And, you know, I should also note, too, that it was so pressure-packed because it was just a one-game showdown. It wasn't, you know, a best-of-seven series like the Stanley Cup final. It was just one game, and, you know, if you didn't play your best or, if you you know, you didn't, you didn't have a good game that day, there was no coming back for a game two the next day. I mean – it was it was all or nothing in this one game. That's why, like I said, no NHL team will ever have to face the pressure that the Flyers did for that game, and for them to play as disciplined as they did against the Soviets, I think it was a tribute to Freddie Shiro's coaching and a tribute to those players who, you know, I mean, they were much more than Broad Street Bullies. I mean, they were a tough talented, skilled, disciplined team because you don't win back-to-back Stanley Cups just by beating up people. I mean, you have to have skill. You have to have talent. And they had all of that. Plus, they had Kate Smith singing the National yeah. Anthem, for God's sakes. I mean, come on. With all that going yeah. for you. Yeah. What if, uh, so besides interviewing people who were there or, or have uh, distinct memories of all that and stuff, what of uh, of this game, if anything, is remembered, commemorated, uh, uh, physically visible, if anything, uh, in Philadelphia about this game? Or is it kind of just something that's in the lore and one has to be a super fan to kind of really recognize it? Is there any recognition of that game? Anybody, do they do any commemorative events or any of that kind of thing for this for this uh, this match? I think on the anniversary of it, they, they remember it like, you know, every 10 years or so. Um, you know, the only flyer statue in Center City Philly is one of uh, uh, Bobby Clark and uh, Bernie Perrant hoisting the Stanley Cup. Um, and I should mention, too, that, you know, Bernie Perrant was the best goalie in NHL at that time uh, and had not – he did not play in the, in the game against the Soviets. He was injured. So they went with the backup goalie, Wayne Stevenson, who played a terrific game. Um, but, yeah, as far as uh, anniversaries go, I you know, the – Every 10 years, you know, when it's January 11th again, you'll see an article appear somewhere on it. Um, but, you know, other than that, uh, I think the Russians might remember it more because of, you know, some of the things I spoke about before, how teenagers in Moscow, you know, were talking to Joe Watson about this game. And, you know, it was decades after the fact that it had already been played. And so, yeah, I mean, they remember the, the time that their league champions, who they thought were the best team in the world, you know, went to Philadelphia and and lost against, you know, the Broad Street Bullies. All right, here's my last question, and I'll let you let you promote. Um, it's interesting. I mean, so much has happened since then, uh, you know, uh, certainly on the geopolitical front, right? Obviously, the collapse of the Soviet Union in the in the 80s and, and, and the, the various iterations of what has come since then, what is now sort of known essentially as a loose federation if you will depending on your political perspective of russia um but it's still interesting to see that uh, the nhl and the K, what is now the khl the continental with the k hockey league are really uh you know considered to be the the two leading professional leagues on the world stage still and and probably mm-hmm. there's a gap of difference uh and and debatable for sure i'm just curious given that sort of the 70s decade, which seemed to be just fraught with 
uh, tension on the global front, but also a desire, a hunger uh, for these uh, uh, two, shall we call them hockey adversaries, both from a country perspective as well as a league perspective to play each other and prove each other that they were superior or better or more competitive or whatever. Um, I'm just surprised that um, here in 2023, there isn't more, um, I don't know, a, a, a similar uh, competitive, uh, you know, tournaments or, or you know, uh, cross-pollination, shall we say, of of teams playing each other, uh, given this, how the, the, the game is globalized. And, and again, I'm, I'm putting politics and, uh, uh, and, and war and other issues aside. I'm just talking specifically about these two hockey leagues, right? Um, I'm wondering why perhaps there hasn't been more ongoing, uh, competition between these, at least these two leagues. Um, cause there's still arguably where, the predominant number uh, amount of talent and highest quality of play in the world live. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fair question. Um, I think, you know, I'm not sure if you can actually take politics out of it. I mean, we've seen, you know, yeah, I, I, I realize that. Yeah. And we, we've seen teams, you know, not participate in the Olympics because of politics, you know, of course, famous 1980 U S boycott. Um, so you know, unfortunately, politics is always going to be a part of it. Uh, politics and sports predates even what happened between the U.S. and Russia and hockey. I mean, you go back to famous fights in international history. You know, Joe Lewis against Max Schmeling. That was fraught with international politics. I mean, the radio audience for that fight included Adolf Hitler and Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, that's how big that fight was. So international politics are always big you know, are always taking place when you have these big events um, when warranted, uh, you know, but as far as the, the two leagues, um, you know, I, I don't think it can ever go back to what it was because Russian players now are known commodities. I mean, they're, you know, they're known personnel. They've been in the NHL for decades now. They're no longer mysterious visitors like they were back in the 70s. You know, we know all about Russian hockey now. We didn't know much about it. Back then, nobody ever saw it. You know, there wasn't ESPN back then. You, you didn't see Russian hockey players anywhere, didn't, except for the Olympics every four years. And, you know, that was basically a one-shot deal. So, you know, you didn't have the coverage. You didn't have the uh, um, the reputations. I mean, basically, all you knew about them was what you read. Um, and now, all of a sudden, here they are. They show up in, in North America during the bicentennial year, of, of all things. And, you know, they're here to take on the the best of the NHL. And, you know, again, I think that's what really made this a, 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 such a unique and special series was because of that unknown, you know, factor. It was something new. It was something different. It was unique. You know, who knew if it would ever happen again? It did, but it, it was years later. And, you know, it was, um, you know, anytime you have something like that, it's, you know, it's going to be uh, groundbreaking. Yeah. And again, I don't mean to dismiss sort of what's going on, you know, today on on the global stage. Right. I mean, I, you know, there's no doubt that that's that's more of a, a, a pipe dream, I guess, of hockey fans than anything else at, at this stage. But it was interesting. I remember a couple of years ago when there was this thing called One World Sports, which was this fledgling cable network in the United States that was um, uh, kind of predicated on uh, global 
sports, bringing sort of uh, leagues from various nations and countries all over the place uh, and sort of creating a, a world sports kind of channel. Um, and one of the uh, um, the highlights of of that that programming uh, was KHL games, and they were broadcast live. And I know I think um, um, Ed Cohen uh, uh, in New York, a, a famous sportscaster there in the in the local area, uh, it would be there, you know, calling these games live uh, at four in the morning. <laughs> You know, uh, from a, off of a feed somewhere up in Connecticut, and um, and the quality of play, I mean, it's is it, it was stunning, frankly. I mean, I, to the average NHL fan, I think you know who hasn't really seen a KHL game, um, I can't believe how widely dispersed geographically these teams are. Uh, obviously, that's just because of the gigantic size of the country, mm-hmm. um, but it's just interesting that um, you know you you arguably still have the the best leagues out there in these two countries and um i don't know if anything's been solved i mean i i i would imagine the nhl fancies itself as the nba and is the global powerhouse mm-hmm. i'm not so sure i think the nba is a little different when it comes to basketball than the nhl is when it comes to hockey i don't think there's any dispute that the nhl is the world's best league but i think the khl and, and maybe even some european players and leagues might think that there's a little bit more i wouldn't call it parity but a little bit more competitiveness perhaps than say where the NBA is or major league baseball is relative to the various leagues around the rest of the world. Yeah. And I would agree with that. And I think the NHL has always had that, you know, idea that they are, you know, the best in the world. And I think they came to a pretty shocking realization back in the 72 summer series that, you know, Hey, there's not a lot of difference between, you know, our best and the best in the Soviet union. And, you know, uh, when other players from, you know, throughout Europe started to come into the NHL, I mean, they were NHL superstars. And, you know, I think the league started to realize that they didn't corner the market on hockey talent. There's hockey talent throughout Europe. There's hockey talent in Russia, you know, and, um, you know, I, I think that they, you know, kind of scaled back their ideas that, you know, only the the best hockey was played here in North America. That um, I think they realized that you know there is great hockey being played in you know Russia and throughout Europe. And you know, uh, I remember a quote from Wayne Gretzky. You know, during the uh, uh, one of the Summit Series in the eighties, and he said that you know people need to realize that you know. There's great hockey here in North America, and there's great hockey in the Soviet Union, too. So, you know, and I think that's it was true then, and I think it's still true today. All right. Our thanks to Ed for that chat. The book is called The Game That Saved the NHL, The Broad Street Bullies, The Soviet Red Machine, and Super Series... 76. It is published by Lions Press, and it is available wherever you find good books, perhaps down the street at your local independent bookseller, or perhaps by going to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, searching up this episode number 322 with Ed Groover and yours truly, and you will find a convenient link to this book, courtesy of our friends at Amazon. You get the hardcover edition, you can get the Kindle edition, And uh, by doing so and purchasing it that manner, uh, you will be giving us a couple of shekels of referral love. We'd appreciate that kindly. Help us keep uh, the heat on 
uh, in these cold winter months as we uh, work our fingers to the bone to get you these episodes each and every week. We, again, appreciate that to no end. Uh, you can send us email if you'd like. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Be sure to uh, subscribe and follow us wherever you find podcasts. So make sure you get every stinking episode of this uh, this extravaganza for you. And um, if you can't find it in your podcast player of preference, please let us know. Uh, I doubt it's hard to find, but uh, if it somehow is, just let us know. We'll try to uh, correct that uh, that situation. You can follow us on uh, social media of various sorts. Uh, you'll find us on uh, X slash Twitter at Good Seats Still. And all the other socials, uh, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, those are places like Threads and Instagram and Good and um, what am I trying to say? Facebook, yes, and YouTube. Those are all, uh, you can follow us there and all those places at Good Seats Still Available. Got it? So it's Good Seats Still for X slash Twitter and everybody else is, every place else thus that we are, are around uh, at Good Seats Still Available. Our thanks, of course, to the great Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Once again, knob twiddling extraordinaire. We appreciate that too. And uh, we, of course, Cannot thank you enough for listening, telling your friends, subscribing and doing whatever it is to get the word out about the show. And uh, uh, you tell two friends and they'll, t- they'll tell two friends and so on and so on. We appreciate that very, very much. Stay warm, everybody. Enjoy the snow. And we will see you next week. God willing. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.